Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hospital workers in Ontario dread going to work. Also on the docket today, TikTok's Tunnel Girl, a race-based data plan in Hamilton, a real estate outlook, the Liberal NDP deal, and will the Golden Bachelor get hitched? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. QB says 41% of the 750 hospital workers that it surveyed here in Ontario, 44% in Hamilton, say they dread going into work. And a similar number are apparently thinking about leaving their job as well. This was a Nanos poll that checked workers' confidence in the provincial government's plan to improve the public health care system, their satisfaction, or lack thereof, with the working conditions that they face on a day-to-day basis and how it impacts their mental health. And clearly, by the results, it has a big impact. Dave Virch is a registered practical nurse and first vice president with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, CUPE, and joins us now on GMH. Dave, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, and thanks so much for having me. I'm going to take a guess that you're not too surprised by seeing these numbers, or, or maybe you are. Uh, no, you know what? I, in, in my role now, I, we talk to healthcare workers across the province and, and Hamilton as well. And you know, I, I know that the the workplaces have been getting worse. Uh, some numbers did shock me, though. Like you had mentioned, forty four percent considering leaving in the next year is is quite a shocking number. What would that do to the system? I I think it would bring it to its knees. I mean, we're already in a crisis situation, and if we were to lose forty four percent of uh, of hospital workers, I think it would uh, it would have a devastating impact. You're a registered practical nurse. Forty one percent of hospital workers in Ontario say they dread going into work. It's forty four percent in Hamilton. Do you have that same kind of mindset? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I have worked 35 years as a registered practical nurse in the province. Uh, um, you know, I've certainly had my challenges during my career. I have been away from the bedside for the last year and a half, but I can certainly say I worked through the pandemic and, uh, you know, we experienced many challenges during that period and, and staffing was one of them. The survey also shows that 62% of QP's hospital workers in this province say they're exhausted, 49% have anxiety, 44% are having trouble sleeping, and that certainly must have a ripple effect when they're actually trying to do their job. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's one of the troubling things that, that I saw in this report was how it's trickled into their personal lives. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people could go to work and, and leave, walk through those doors and, and put it behind them. But clearly this is, uh, this is having an impact on, on their lives outside of work. And, uh, and I think that's what's bringing a lot of these healthcare workers to the conclusion that, you know, they simply may, may not be able to continue in doing the job they're doing. Talking about a new survey from QP and Nanos that uh, checked in with hospital workers in this province. 44% of them here in Hamilton say they dread going into work and a similar number thinking about leaving their job because of the stressors in the workplace. And we're in discussion with uh, Dave Virch, an RPN and first VP with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, QP. From the government standpoint, Premier Doug Ford has said time and time again, listen, we've hired 15,000 nurses uh, is is that accurate? Is that a number that has helped the system? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, absolutely. They, there there has been more hires. What we're, we're seeing across the province right now is we have 19,000 vacancies in our hospitals across the province. In four years from now, we anticipate that we're going to need 60,000 more healthcare workers in our system. Um, turnover rates uh, are historically high. Uh, last year was 10%. Um, so as healthcare workers are coming in, you know, it's my sense that they're disillusioned. They can't do the job they were trained to do simply because the workloads are crushing and they're leaving. 
And th- those numbers, those vacancies are only going to grow, as you suggest, because if, if someone's listening to this thinking, well, I don't want to be a nurse, I don't want to work in the hospital if they're dreading going into work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's what we're calling on the government uh, right now. We're, we want to instill hope back into this workforce. We're calling on the government to increase funding by $1.25 billion per year for the next four years, and that's above inflation. Uh, and we're bringing solutions to the table. We are currently in bargaining with the Ontario Hospital Association, and we want to introduce uh, staff-to-patient ratios. Um, you know, th- this is a model that we've seen uh, incorporated by the British Columbia government last year. Uh, certainly something in California that's existed now for decades. And uh, research has shown that, uh, you know, you get better patient outcomes and staff satisfaction uh, goes up considerably. In regards to those ideas, Dave, has the provincial government, has the OHA been responsive to that? Or are they at least listening to your suggestions? Well, we're at the table right now. Um, We are actually going back to mediation next week uh, where we will have further discussions. Um, the issue is we need a funding commitment from our, this government because clearly these solutions, you know, there is a price tag to them. And uh, we really need this provincial government to step up and fund our system, which has been chronically underfunded uh, for decades, to be perfectly frank. Um, uh, so we really need the government to step up now and make healthcare a priority for all Ontarians. Last year, the provincial government opened up the, the, the private system a little more to traditionally publicly funded healthcare deliveries. Is that at all made a positive impact? No, I would actually say uh, the opposite. Um, you know, we're in a human resources crisis. Any healthcare worker that's drawn into the private system is one less healthcare we have in our hospitals. Um you know, we have a we have a system that you know we've actually done more with less than any other province across Ontario um, for decades. If we fund our system properly, we know we'll be there, there to meet uh, the needs of Ontarians. Well, some sobering statistics from this survey, Dave. Appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Dave Virch is a registered practical nurse, first VP with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, QP. Uh, clearly, the situation is not ideal at Ontario hospitals. and hasn't been not only for a couple of years or since the pandemic, but, but for years and years and years. The investments, the training, the retention, the attraction, uh, the recruitment, the education component has all been, well, whittled away slowly but surely chipping away and it has had a gross impact and in a negative sense on what we're seeing in our healthcare system, whether it's in a hospital uh, or what's in another healthcare facility. There have been too many negative moves and there isn't one magic bullet. As you've heard, there's a lot of different factors in this scenario and uh, well, well we're, we're hopeful. I think everyone's hopeful that uh, everyone in the system, whether it's a a government official, a union leader, a, a healthcare professional that's working in the industry that is dreading the going to work, that is thinking about changing course in their career, will come to the table, maybe provide an idea or find lightning in a bottle to uh, to course correct. We shall see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hear about this woman known as Tunnel Girl. This is a woman on TikTok who's gone viral after building a massive tunnel underneath her home in Virginia. Tunnel Girl is digging a shelter under her house and people have questions. I'm planning to construct a storm shelter off the side of my basement. The unusual home improvement project is allegedly planned 
to be 30 feet long and 20 feet deep. I love cutting through ancient rock. I never know exactly what I'm going to find next. People worry about how it might potentially affect her neighbors. How pissed I would be if an amateur was literally putting a sinkhole under the house next door. Because there's no way that people would approve that in a suburb. Kala works in IT and has no formal background in engineering. Clips show her having accidents and testing crowdsourced engineering suggestions. Kala, known as the Tunnel Girl, has since been told to halt her storm shelter project, which is 22 feet underground, due to potential violations. And so I thought, can you build something like that here? in Hamilton, in Ontario. Alan Shaw is the chief building official with the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Alan, good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Have you come across... This is a a strange one for both of us, I guess. (laughs) So I'm I'm guessing you haven't come across any uh, tunnel girls here in Hamilton. We have had situations where individuals have built uh, safe rooms, shelters, wine wine cellars, and so on, but not, not tunnels. So is is this allowed? Is digging underneath your home allowed as long as you have the proper permitting? So you could could potentially build a safe room or a, a uh, shelter or, or uh, such underneath or adjacent to your foundation, but you would require building permits and require the proper engineering to go along with those permits. So what goes into making sure that it's not disturbing either that particular house or the neighborhood? First of all, I mean, there's, there's a lot of engineering that goes into these type of structures. There's soil conditions, there's water tables, there's uh, uh, soil gases and so on that all need to be looked at by a professional. Um, may I start by saying that as a public service announcement, announcement please don't try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> the, the engineering that goes into sub, uh, substructures in regards to uh, underneath your foundation, because I believe this one is actually underneath her footings and foundation. So yes. she's basically compromised her existing structure. Um, there's a, a handful, if not a dozen people that die every year in excavation and, uh, and trenching, uh, collapses. This is extremely dangerous and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody to take on without professional assistance. What's wild too is a, she's doing it herself. She has no engineering background aside from working in it. Like that's her day job and she's undertaking this massive project. It's, it's crazy. It, it is crazy, and it's a bit irresponsible of individuals to do these type of things online. Unfortunately, we live in a, the, uh, the video world uh, where people go online to see what can and can't be done. And this gives the impression that she actually knows what she's doing, which clearly any individual who has engineering experience or any kind of construction experience can see that she's, she's a little bit off on much of the work that she's doing. Um, and it just it leads people to the belief, and there are, there are supporters of hers that, that believes what she's doing is correct and well-engineered. Yeah, and there's a lot of times where she is reaching out to the community on TikTok to say, you know, what should I do in this instance? You know, seeking guidance from, I would assume, non-engineers. Well, when you go out into the cyber world, you're not sure what qualifications you're going. You don't know if the individual has an engineering background. I would suggest that anybody with the structural engineering background wouldn't touch this one with a 10-foot pole. So, I, I you know, 
uh, the, the type of assistance that she's getting is would be suspect at best. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Alan Shaw, the chief building official with the city of Hamilton. We're talking about this woman on TikTok known as Tunnel Girl, who's gone viral after she built a massive tunnel underneath her home in Virginia to tie in a storm shelter right beside her house. And this is 22 feet underground, but she's been told to halt uh, production, so to speak, because of potential violations. And you mentioned structural integrity. Um, what could possibly go wrong and how long would it take to go wrong? Uh, first of all, the situation can go very bad very quickly. Uh, when you're dealing with uh, substrates and, and basically what you're doing is you're undermining your existing foundation and footing. Um, this can cause a collapse of the existing structure and that has occurred. There's been incidents, there was a collapse in St. Thomas over the Christmas holidays where the entire building was being uh excavated around the building for some re- foundation repairs and the it ended up that the building had to be uh, um, condemned and, and bulldozed. Uh, in these type of situations, if you don't have uh, the proper paperwork and the permits in place, I would uh, assume that the your insurance companies probably would not cover you for these type of damages. So uh, it's, 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 it's multifold in regards to the fact of the risk that this individual is taking, and, and uh, it's very concerning. In the report that we played off the top of the segment, uh, there, were, uh, um, there was a neighbor who obviously expressed some concern, and, and probably rightfully so. From a neighborhood impact standpoint, is there, is there much of a factor? Would this impact other homes? Depending on where they are in proximity to the angle of repose, which is a technical term, uh, but if they start to get underneath and, and compromise the uh, neighboring structures, there is a, a, a strong possibility she could damage uh, structures and driveways and uh, and such of neighboring properties if collapse did occur. If anyone is listening to this interview and and does want to you know go through the proper process to build whatever they want to build underneath, how long does it take to get this thing set up? Well, first of all, I think you need to understand what you're doing uh, and, and seek out professional help. Uh, there are individuals that can assist uh, homeowners with uh, preparing proper reports and, and drawings to get approval from the city. The city will go through a review process to make sure that those plans and, and reports meet the criteria for safe construction under the Building Code Act. And we'll also check to make sure that the, the setbacks from the neighboring properties and the, the where the, the buildings being proposed meets with other applicable law and the zoning bylaws. So um, there is a bit of a process involved with, with this, but it's actually there to protect the, the citizens, both the homeowner and the neighbors. I would imagine too, and you know, if, if, if someone's building a bomb shelter, for example, I mean, this isn't cheap, right? Uh, it, construction is never cheap anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. Alan, appreciate your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Alan Shaw is the chief building official with the city of Hamilton. And the, these videos of Tunnel Girl have shown her cutting through concrete, installing an elevator shaft to remove thousands of pounds of rocks. She's been pumping out water from where she has been digging, installing electricity and ventilation. There have been setbacks, though. She has had fires and partial collapses. It is it is mind-boggling to even see what she has accomplished, but... Man, oh man, that is a dangerous situation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton Police is planning to create a community advisory panel uh, this year to help develop a new race-based data strategy. And what is this all about? Where is this going to go and why is this needed? Pat Mandy is the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board and joins us on GMH. Good morning, Pat. Happy New Year. 
Good morning. Happy New Year to you. What is the purpose of, uh, let's start with the strategy itself, this race-based data strategy. What is its purpose? Okay, I'll just uh, just start from the beginning. Um, about, eight, well, actually November 22, the Ontario Association of Police Chiefs uh, embarked on a uh, developing a, a framework for uh, race and identity-based data. They worked on it for a year, working with experts from academia, uh, policy, ministry, and so on. And they've come up with a framework that would be consistent across the province and being, being able to address and assess systemic racism and take action to uh, make improvement. So in October, the uh, provincial framework was completed and now it's off to each of the services. Our service um, in Hamilton has been um, on a journey of developing um, um, uh, transformation in diversity, equity, um, and inclusion. And so this comes at a really good time, fits with our uh, uh, strategic planning process. And uh, uh, most of the work will be done by the, um, by the service members with the expertise. But also what's more important is that we will be engaging a community advisory uh, committee uh, with members uh, with diverse backgrounds, uh, academic partners, um, um, the um, various uh, minority groups in our in our in our community, uh, folks from uh, uh, from um, the uh, indigenous uh, um, uh, communities, from black communities um, across the board. If I keep naming them, I'll forget. <laughs> anyway, it does uh, its work, and it will help build uh, relationships. One of the issues that uh, we've identified in our strategic plan is that we do need to build more trust in the community and by working with our communities and our partners to develop a strategy that will address uh, problems uh, with uh, um, and, and also identify uh, problems with uh, uh, any systemic racism. One of the issues that we all know is that unless we can measure something or identify and make sure that we have a, um, a credible data um, is really important. We will also need the help of community expertise and diverse opinions to be able to make that a, a good that's actionable. So the is, other is, thing is the mandate that I'm understanding is that this uh, panel, uh, there will be an application process and uh, that's just being worked on now how that will how that will work um, to uh, select the members. There will be a process that will be open um, to all that by the end of January. And um, that uh, by the end of February, uh, there will be a process to select uh, members uh, by mid-March. So the board is looking forward to hearing that we will be having um, you know updates along the way as we are in the as a framework to ensure that we are continuing to be in alignment with um, our policy, strategic plan, our values, et cetera. Pat, we only have 90 seconds, but I want to ask you, is the, man oh. is the mandate of the community advisory panel yes. uh, to offer feedback on the strategy, to, to advise the police service on how to implement it? It will be actually, uh, I think, a little more than that. They will be partners in developing what the uh, the data how and what will be measured and will probably change as it goes along as as uh, look at uh, at what it informs what action can be done so i think it's a much stronger close 
partnership. Uh, it is advisory committee because they can't direct. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I think it's a commitment to to building and earning trust in the community and taking action on on it uh, that needs to be taken. How can people apply, and how many people do you need for this panel? I believe there's twelve, uh, but I would have to uh, check check my number. Uh, there will be an application process uh, that'll be uh, posted on our website. It will be um, advertised. Uh, that will be more detail by the end before the end of uh, of the month. All right. Well, we're looking forward to that and looking forward to hearing more information on this panel and the strategy itself. Pat, thanks for the time this morning and enjoy your day. You're welcome. Thank you. Pat Mandy is the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier this week, the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington released its stats for 2023, and it included a drop in sales for the second year in a row and an 11%, 11% drop compared to 2022. So what can we expect from the local real estate market this year, whether you are buying a home or or selling your home? What are the expectations? Nicholas Von Bredo is the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Nicholas, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. Thank you. Um, the sales slowdown. I'm I'm sure that was expected after a rather robust 2021. You know, we saw a dip in 2022, and and with you know mortgage rates and interest rates where they are, was was this the expectation? Yes. I mean, with the interest rates going up, as the Bank of Canada did their that made their moves there, the expectation was that the market was going to slow down. I mean, it did take a lot of purchasing power away from people, and their qualifying rates of what they could qualify for and their purchasing power went down also. So. It was expected that the market would slow down, and um, I mean, after the the boom years we had during COVID, you're always going to have a bit of a correction. From a price standpoint, did we also see a correction there? A slight correction. I mean, prices have stayed pretty steady. They did not come down as much as people expected, but there was a slight drop in the prices. The impact of higher mortgage rates this year, we're hearing that the Bank of Canada will likely drop rates probably by a quarter of a percent, maybe a half a percent in some cases, and maybe as early as this spring. What impact is this going to have on the market? I think it's going to have a pretty strong impact. I mean, I think there's been a lot of buyers have been sitting in the um, in the wings just waiting to sort of understand better what's happening in the marketplace. So the moment the Bank of Canada... Um, shows an indication that they've completely stopped rising or raising interest rates and have potentially started lowering them. I think that'll give some buyers some indication that I mean the increases have stopped and they'll come back into the market because then they'll have a better understanding of what's happening and they'll, there'll be more stability around their decision-making process. We have heard too that supply has been an issue in this city and, and many other cities across the province or the country for that matter. Where are we at with supplies? That's still a big concern. Yeah, inventory levels are lower. I mean, they were extremely low at the beginning of the year, the first half of the year of 2023. And then the second half of 2023, we did see inventory levels starting to rise. So um, our month of supply right now is at a 43.3. So that means it's going to take 4.3 months to um, use up all the supply that's on the market right now, which is 26% higher year over year. And is that a surprising number? Is that a number that we were expecting to see? Um, I think it's a number we were expecting to see. I personally expected to see it sooner than the second half of 2023. Um, but again, I mean, as sellers are sitting there seeing with the interest rates going up, seeing that there aren't many buyers in the marketplace, a lot of sellers weren't putting their houses on the market either. And I think now towards the end of 2023, with the chatter in the marketplace that possible interest rate decreases are going to be coming in the near future, um, people are starting to prepare their houses to put back onto the market because the expectation is that buyers will be coming back into the market also. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Nicholas Von Bredo, the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, as we recap the year that was in real estate in 2023 and look ahead to 2024 as we as we provide an outlook for this year. What are you expecting to see with this market in terms of not only price point, but sales, but maybe general trends that we haven't seen in the past or might continue this year? Well, I think the first bit of the the first half of the year is going to be a bit of a slower year until we hear some sort of announcements from the Bank of Canada. But I do feel that the moment we have some announcements from the Bank of Canada, they're positive towards the marketplace, such as a um, such as an interest rate reduction. I think a lot of um, consumers will come out of the out of the wings, come back into the marketplace. There'll be a, a flurry of activity again. I don't believe it'll be as strong as it was during the COVID time. But um, I think we will have a strong, robust market coming into the second half of next year. So there'll be opportunity for sellers to get some good sales prices and also for buyers to have a good opportunity to buy something. But for buyers, I think if they want to really find some good opportunities, they should come back into the market a little bit sooner um, before the most do. Because that way, then there'll be be homes on the market that may be on the market a little bit longer or there'll be a higher inventory number, too. So they'll have more options. With so what, I think it'll be a nicely a nice strong balanced market, and um, we'll have some activity numbers really increasing the second half of the year. Well, that's good to hear. With uh, with the housing market where it is, and with the rental market where it is, if you have a home that can be easily converted into a duplex or maybe even a triplex, or you have that you know that basement kind of apartment, or maybe you've uh, transferred your garage into a a second living space. Are those kind of properties going to be more valuable from here on in? I think they'll be more attractive to buyers, especially for some of the new first-time home buyers and the younger buyers in the marketplace, because it gives them an opportunity to have a little bit of income from that rental or from the rentals, a rental component of the house to be able to help pay and offset those um, mortgage rates and those mortgage costs. I mean, the affordability is also still a tough thing in our marketplace, and I'd say a lot of Canada, but especially around the GTA and the Hamilton area. And so, I mean, that having that rental option is a huge benefit because it helps um, pay, put some money towards the mortgage. And with the urban boundary debate put to bed, um, we're looking at infill, we're looking at building more multi-unit spaces in this city. We've heard, you know, the wartime homes program or at least a, a rendition of that making a comeback. Are these positive things for our city? Are you hearing from people who are saying, I'm, you know, I'm excited about this? I think it's a positive thing, absolutely. I think we have to have proper smart growth in any urban center. There has to be sort of in, infill style of growth, but there also has to be sort of other types of growth such, um, along the edge of the urban boundary also. I mean, the consumer out there is what really dictates what they want, what type of product mix they want. And obviously, I mean, a lot of the um, consumers out there right now is, a, is the generation that's just starting families and they want to have some space to be able to raise their families and raise their young children. So only having condos and apartments isn't the solution either, but I think a good mix is needed. And as you mentioned, the rental rates have been going up quite a bit. So we need more supply on the rental side also. So those that comes to condos and apartments being rented out to have more rental supply to hopefully ease the um, increase in prices on rents. Yeah, we got to get to that space uh, hopefully sooner rather than later to uh, to ease the pressure on many individuals and families in our community. Nicholas, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and Happy New Year as well. Happy New Year. Thank you. Nicholas Von Bredo is the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. And if you are wondering the December 2023 stats, so the latest stats that we have from the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, by price point, average price in Burlington is just over a million dollars, a million forty nine. 
Uh, Hamilton at 760, and then Niagara, depending on where you are, you're looking at about you know $618,000, which is actually a drop of 6% uh, from the previous month. So uh, interesting st- uh, stats from the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Whether you love talking politics or not, no one can deny the intrigue that has been generated from the supply and confidence agreement between the governing liberals and the NDP. The question that most people are asking themselves is, how much longer is this going to go on for? And that is also the question that our next guest is asking in his latest article on theconversation.com. And here with us is Daniel Balange, political science professor at McGill University. Professor Balange, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. Let me start with this. Has this coalition helped both or hurt both parties? And and maybe has, has one benefited more than the other? Well, first of all, it's not a coalition in the strict sense of the term, like a coalition government, but it's a legislative coalition. Right. So what's happening is that the basically what's written in the agreement is that the NDP will support the Liberals uh, at confidence votes when there is a confidence vote as long as the Liberals deliver on some policy issues like dental care and pharmacare. So um, when we look at this agreement, it has... I think provided a lot of stability uh, to the liberals as a minority government that can really basically rely on the NDP to survive uh, as a government. Uh, For the NDP, I think it's more about bragging rights in terms of, you know, claiming credit for um, what the liberals are doing in terms of expanding social programs or creating new programs. So, the, the, the NDP gets something out of the agreement in terms of saying, without us, the Liberals will have done will have not done this or that. Like in case of the Canadian Dental Care Plan, for example, it was not in the 2021 um, Liberal platform, but it's something that the NDP pushed for. They included it in the Supply and Confidence Agreement they signed with the Liberals in March 2022. And the Liberals, in the end, uh, acted upon this uh, this agreement and, and created that new program. It is an interesting dichotomy because both leaders, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh, you know, clearly need each other, but they don't really recognize each other for making each other better, if, if you catch my drift. Yes, absolutely. So uh, it's especially hard for the NDP because um, what we are seeing now is uh, Liberals trailing far behind the the conservatives in the polls. Justin Trudeau is um, not very popular. And so it's difficult for Jack Singh and the the NDP to navigate this because they are really embedded with literally in the same bed as the the liberals in the sense that they they support them on on, um, confidence votes. So they keep them alive uh, as a government. Um, but at the same time, they have to, you know, they are very close to a, a, a rather unpopular government. So that's a risk for them. And that's why Jack Mead Singh in recent months has become more critical of Justin Trudeau and the liberal government uh, on a number of issues such as uh, cost of living and, and the housing crisis. And, and also we have this um, issue of pharmacare. The Liberals have not delivered yet on a pharmacare bill, which they were supposed to um, move forward with uh, 
in 2023. Now the NDP gave them two more months uh, to produce a bill on pharmacare, a national pharmacare program. Uh, we'll see whether they deliver or not, because for the liberals, there's also a risk here is that they um, they don't want to spend on some items like pharmacare that they think might not be their own priority or the priority of Canadians right now. And so I think that this is, um, we'll see how long this lasts and who will basically give up on this agreement first. Will it be the Liberals will pull the plug on it or more, more likely scenario will be the NDP pulling the plug on it. But even if they do that, right, it doesn't mean that the government will fall because the NDP could still support the Liberals uh, um, on a, let's issue by issue uh, in a kind of, instead of having a, this agreement, they just do like in a regular minority uh, parliament, they just bargain over a specific vote, a specific piece of legislation, one at the time. Um, and also you could imagine the bloc uh, prompting the, the liberals in the context of, the, of um, a confidence vote. So again, the end of this agreement might not mean the end of the current minority parliament and, and federal elections ahead of the deadline, which we have to remember the, the official deadline in terms of fixed election dates uh, is just October 2025. So will this agreement last so long uh, uh, or uh, will it, it fall apart uh, this year or uh, early in 2015? Only time will tell. We have uh, 90 more seconds with Daniel Balange, political science professor at McGill University, and you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He has written an article about the uh, confidence and supply agreement between the Liberals and the NDP on theconversation.com. Let me ask you this. If you're a betting man, do you think this survives 2024? And who do you think pulls the plug? Is it Trudeau or Singh? Yeah, I'm not a betting man, so I would <laughs> not make any <laughs> prediction. But I, I would say that right now, if one of them will pull the plug. It will be Jack Mead Singh and the NDP, especially because the liberals are not very committed, I think, to pharmacare. So unless the, the liberals do something, put forward a, a serious bill on, on pharmacare, that might be a good excuse for Jack Mead Singh to pull the plug on this agreement, uh, becoming even more critical of the liberals, but without necessarily uh, uh, triggering uh, federal uh, elections early on, because they know that based on the current polling, uh, it will probably be uh, uh, the conservatives who will have the really the will be likely to win. And and this is not something that, of course, the liberals nor the NDP uh, want. Well, it's going to be fun to watch. I know there are, is also some talk about whether or not the liberals and the NDP should you know, maybe, I guess, in some cases, do themselves in favor and, and merge together, just like the progressive conservatives and the Canadian Alliance did, what, 20, 21 years ago now. They gave us the Harper government way back when. Not sure what the odds are of that, but I'm sure that's further down the road. Maybe we can talk about that the next time we have Daniel Balland on from McGill University. Professor Balland, appreciate your time once again. Enjoy the day. You're most welcome. Take care. Have a nice day. Really enjoyed my chat with uh, Professor Balland from McGill U. We'll certainly have to have him back on on a future program. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, everyone who has followed the new TV show, The Golden Bachelor, is waiting to see what is going to happen tonight. Because tonight, the wedding ceremony, we think, for Golden Bachelor Gary Turner and his fiancée, Teresa, will be broadcast live on ABC. And I say we think because 
The question is, will these two lovebirds actually tie the knot, or is one going to get cold feet at the last minute and call the whole thing off? Dr. Carol Lieberman is a Beverly Hills psychiatrist and the author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Lieberman, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Fine, thank you. You have some reasons why Gary and Teresa will and won't walk down the aisle. But before we get to those reasons, you're quoted as saying, and I, I thought this was maybe the, the biggest aha moment for me as a watcher of the show, is that Gary, quote, has more red flags than a used car lot on their biggest sale day. And I want to ask you why. Why do you think that? Since the uh, end of the show, since he gave her, uh, since he proposed on the show, I have been trying uh, to warn Teresa not to marry him. Now, of course, she's excited. She's happy. She was picked. I mean, you know, that's, uh, she was on cloud nine thinking that uh, she she was better than these other women and so on. But he has a lot of red flags uh, and a lot of it came to light after the show was over when you know he had presented himself as someone who hadn't been kissed um after his wife died his college sweetheart they had been married for about 40 years and he presented himself as essentially virginal um since then and in fact the hollywood reporter did some digging which the show should have done uh and found that he not only did he kiss some women but um he also had one live with him he had a three-year relationship and that was ended in disaster. You know, Carolyn, she goes by Carolyn because uh, she doesn't want to give her real name. She has told stories about him, things like um, how when he he married her, uh, no, he, he didn't marry her. He promised he was going to marry her. And then he got her to move in with him into his home. And they he had a retirement home that he and his original first wife were supposed to live in until she got sick from an infection and strangely died very soon after. <laughs> and he had met Carolyn right before they moved to this home. So um, I don't know. that It just seemed, I'll leave it at that. So there were a couple of reasons why I was warning her. Five, five reasons. First of all, the Freudian slip in his proposal. You know, he gave kind of a strange proposal where he made it seem like he didn't want to marry her and then he changed it that he did. And actually, I think that that was um, revealing. I think he really liked the runner up who was um, Leslie Fema. I think he really liked her better. But Teresa, the one he picked, had a lot more money. And I think that was um, a big, a big reason why he picked her. Then also, um, he, he said he made his mind up after he went on an overnight with um, Teresa. And clearly, you know, she pulled out all the stops sexually, but and that's fine, except that that's not, you know, if that's what got him to pick her, um, that's not what you base a marriage on. I even wrote to her brother, to Teresa's brother, and to her daughter, Jen, and, and gave them these reasons. Yeah, but, and how did they respond to that? <laughs> well, I didn't hear back from the brother or the daughter. However, as you might have heard, um, you know, there was a lull. There was a a period of radio silence where between Christmas and New Year's, where they weren't, they didn't put anything up about each other uh, on social media. They weren't seen with each other. And rumor has it, and and I think it's it's more than rumor, um, insiders have said that um, she asked him for a prenup 
and he was offended. He didn't want to sign a prenup. Well, you know, offended that she didn't believe him, right? When he told <laughs> all these lies, like another one was that he was a he. They presented him as a restaurant tour when, in fact. The only um, thing close to a restaurant he owned was a store like a McDonald's. It was like a drive through That's not exactly a restaurant tour. And then after that, he was fixing hot tubs and doing other kind of less um, glamorous sorts of things. So, of course, she's not going to trust him. Let me ask you this. If either of them get cold feet tonight, do you think Leslie, who you've mentioned, and or Faith, who was also among one of the last three standing, do you think either of them would be or should be open to rekindling their romance with Gary? That is a great question. That would, could you imagine um, <laughs> the ratings would go through the roof? <laughs> um, I, I I would not say that that is impossible. I could see that happening um, because she, um, Teresa seems a little bit more, you know, she, she's in, in finance and she seems a little bit more practical. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, there could be something like if he didn't uh, still refuse to sign the prenup, for example, um, you know, I could see her maybe deciding not to walk down the aisle. Let's get to the reasons why you think they will walk down the aisle. They want to keep their 15 minutes of fame going. You know, they have clearly enjoyed all of this. Neither one of them had experienced anything like this celebrity status before. In fact, his friends have been saying that since he's been on The Golden Bachelor, or since he was The Golden Bachelor, he's been, you know, acting like he's a celebrity. He buys expensive watches and an expensive car, and he's just acting like he's the bee's knees. Another reason they want the fancy wedding and the honeymoon that The Golden Bachelor promised them. Teresa, I don't think he would care, but Teresa would feel bad about disappointing the show and the fans and her family and friends, then um, the Golden Bachelor comes from a dysfunctional home. You know, his mother was an alcoholic. So um, he, I think, likes, Teresa was very mothering, nurturing, and I think he likes that and would want that. And um, last but not least, they figure life is short and they should seize the day now and get divorced later. I mean, I think now that he has become famous, I think he would get a lot of women trying to flirt with him, you know, if if nothing else for the fame that they would get if they married him, you know, and I think that he could well divorce Teresa, especially if, um, you know, he finds that it's not as easy to get his hands on her money as he had hoped. Very interesting stuff. Dr. Lieberman, thank you for your time and your insight into this and that we'll all be watching later on tonight. Yes, thank you. Dr. Carol Lieberman, Beverly Hills psychiatrist and author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them. And it's funny that we're already talking about divorce and they're not even married yet, and they might not get. But we shall see later on tonight if they indeed tie the knot. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.